This morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 16, calling this Fresh Wineskins. Um, if you, I don't know if you've ever noticed, uh, we're in the middle of, of baseball season, which is, is my favorite uh, sport, favorite season. And I've noticed something about sports fans, in, including myself, um, and that is um, they talk very different, differently about the team uh, when they lose versus when they win. Whatever team they're a fan of, and this happens across all sports, um, and almost all sports fans do this, that if the team won, if you ask them, how was the game? And they say, they'll say, we won. Um, but if they lost, you'll say, how was the game? And they say, they lost. Uh, we always want to be a part of it when the team's winning. We want to be a part of it. We want to claim that we're part of the team. We act like we helped accomplish it somehow. Um, but then when they lose, uh, it's like, oh, those guys, oh, those bums, you know, these guys can't hit. Uh, these guys can't play. Uh, all of a sudden, we distance ourselves from the team. Um, but it's just, a, it's just a funny thing that, that sports fans do. Uh, but I'm, I was thinking about that because at this point in the gospel, in this point in Matthew's account of the gospel, he's not actually part of Jesus' team yet. He is not one of the disciples yet. Uh, we're going to see today, right off the bat, um, how he became a follower of Jesus. We're going to start here in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through, 7, 9 through 13, tax collectors and sinners. It says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we see Matthew, um, and, and we have to preface this by saying, this cannot be the first time that Matthew sees Jesus. He's not seeing him for the first time, right? He's in the community at this point, um, and, and he's seen Jesus. It's likely that he was even been at some of um, the, the events that happened. Maybe he saw some of the miracles, um, but he wasn't a follower of Jesus yet. He, he's witnessing a lot of these things, but he's not following Jesus the way the other disciples are yet. Um, and it seems that Matthew is telling us all the things that led up to him following Jesus. He'd seen Jesus's authority at work. He'd seen Jesus's authority in teaching, uh, at least heard about it, at least heard that this is what the crowds reported. Um, he'd seen Jesus's authority over disease, seen some of the healings. He saw his authority over creation. He probably heard the story when the disciples got back from the boat, how he had calmed the wind and the waves. Um, he'd, see, he'd heard about the story of what happened on the other side of the lake in Gergesa and and his authority over demons. And he'd heard of his authority to forgive sins. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and just in the last week when he healed the paralytic. Um, and now he's going to have authority over Matthew himself. It's almost like G he, Matthew is showing, look at Jesus has these, this authority, has all this authority. And so of course when he called me, I gave him the authority over my life as well. He'd also witnessed all the radical words and, and deeds of Jesus. He saw the, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the touching of the leper to heal him, all of these radical things that Jesus had done. 
And all of these things had been working in Matthew's heart and mind. He'd probably even inquired of the disciples what had happened in all these cases. Um, and, and we notice in the very beginning of this passage in verse 9, it starts off with saying, as Jesus passed on from there. So we need to think about well, what is he passing on from? Where is, is Jesus going? Where is Jesus coming from? Where is he going to? And he's, of course, leaving the house where he healed the paralytic. He's leaving um, this house and he passes by Matthew's tax booth. Well, then what else can we presume from that? We can presume that the paralytic had been carried past Matthew's tax booth on the stretcher and then had walked out of the house past Matthew's tax booth carrying his stretcher. Um, and so you can just imagine how that worked in Matthew's heart and mind. He'd already heard all these things about Jesus, seen all these things. Then he sees these people carrying a paralytic into the house where Jesus is. And then the par that same paralytic walking out past Matthew's tax booth. And then a little later on, Jesus himself comes out and walks past Matthew's tax booth and says, follow me. And so no wonder Matthew was ready to go when Jesus said, follow me. He had been hearing about all these things. He'd seen a lot of these things. Um, and then most recently, he saw this amazing miracle with the paralytic from an outsider's perspective, right? He saw these things happen from the, from the perspective of the tax booth. But if we think about the, um, the cost of Matthew's obedience, right? Matthew had already given up his standing in the community in order to become a tax collector. Right? To become a tax collector, you'd become an outcast of your society. He had to be a Jew. He had to be um, of the people that's how the Romans recruited these guys. They wanted the people collecting taxes to be from the community. Um, but then he was collecting taxes for the Roman government. He would have seen as, um, as betraying his community. Um, he had sided with the occupiers and were benefiting from the arrangement. He was benefiting from their arrangement. All the tax collectors were. They were making their living um, on, on the backs of the Roman government. Um, and so... He, would, he was already an outcast because he was a tax collector from much of Jewish society. And now he's rejecting his employers, the, the, the Roman government, and joining another group that's an outsider group um, from the community as well, right? That Jesus and the disciples were not widely, uh, were not accepted by those in power, at least. Even if they were popular among the populace, um, they were not accepted by the religious elite. So... He's just almost picking uh, an outsider group and going to another outsider group. Um, and and he, so he's giving up all of these things. He's giving up what he had already given up so much to gain by being a tax collector. And then it takes us to the scene of Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, like Matthew. Matthew is one of those guys. Um, and he's, he's hanging out with these guys. And we see this phrase sprinkled throughout the gospel accounts, this, this phrase, tax collectors and sinners. So who, who, do the, what, what, who do these terms represent? Who are these people? Well, tax collectors were those who had gained wealth at the expense of their community. They were seen as betray, betraying their community, as siding with the occupiers. Um, you know, they were outcast for that reason. And then sinners referred to blatant sinners, right? People that, um, whose sins were obvious. These would have been uh, prostitutes and adulterers, drug addicts, possibly 
uh, people who had given up on even trying to be good, people that were just outright sinning and not even uh, not even trying to hide it, not trying to um, pretend like they were okay. Uh, they were people that were just willingly um, and blatantly sinning. And the Pharisees cannot understand why Jesus would share a meal with these people. Right? They're probably very perplexed by this guy because they can see that at the very least he understands Scripture. He knows uh, what he's talking about, and yet he's doing all these things that they wouldn't do and that they wouldn't uh, accept anyone doing. Um, and Jesus responds to them in saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He explains why he's spending time with these people. Um, and notice why, what his explanation says here. When he says this is his explanation, is that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Notice that he doesn't say, these are good people. Right? He doesn't say, don't judge them, they're good people. No, he says, they're sick. He recognizes that they need to change, that they are not okay how they're living. But so often in our culture and, and in, in, throughout history, frankly, um, we've wanted to view um, these things in a kind of dichotomous way, right? That you either reject sin and sinners entirely and you denigrate them and say you're terrible because you're not living the way you're supposed to. Or we say that you must, in order to accept them, approve everything they do and say, this is all fine, there's nothing wrong, you're, you're totally okay. Um, so often we view approval of sin as the only way to interact with sinners in a positive way, um, and then the only way to uh, prove that we disapprove of sin is by entirely rejecting um, individual sinners. That's kind of this dichotomous way that we view this, but Jesus does something different than either of those things. He doesn't entirely reject them and, and cast them out and tell them how terrible they are, but he also doesn't tell them everything you're doing is okay. He doesn't approve of everything that they're doing. Um, he spends time with them. He eats and drinks with them. They feel truly welcomed and accepted by him, and yet he still disapproves of, his, of their sin. Notice, he can say this. He can say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, in the presence of these tax collectors and sinners, and they don't storm out, right? They don't storm off. They don't say, how dare you call us sick? They don't, they don't reject this, this characterization that he's given them, which shows that he must have built some reputation with them. He has built a relationship with them uh, to where they don't just take this as a rejection. His actions speak louder than his words in terms of how he treats them. And then he tells the, the, the Pharisees to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what we see in this passage, because he's actually quoting the Old Testament there. Um, what we see in this is that over and over again, the Israelites became fixated on the technical aspects of the sacrificial system instead of on the heart of the sacrificial system. He's saying that the heart of the sacrificial system is mercy. The heart of the fact that God gave them a way to deal with their sin, to make these sacrifices and, and clear their guilt in some kind of way is pure mercy. He doesn't need to do that. He can entirely judge them and cast them out immediately and be 100% justified in doing so. Um, he wants them to demonstrate the same heart that God has demonstrated toward them. 
He'd been incredibly merciful to them, and yet they were not merciful with one another. And then he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came for sinners. So the question then that this naturally brings us to is, are there people that Jesus did not come for? Because if he's saying, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. Is he saying that there are people who are righteous who don't need him? No, that's not what he's saying. There are because we know from Scripture, and, and I think Jesus is even hinting at this in an almost sarcastic kind of way with this comment, that the, the Pharisees know these, there, are, there are Scriptures that tell them there is none righteous. Right? We know this from, uh, most, most commonly this is quoted from Romans, where Paul says um, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it actually said that in the Old Testament as well. In Psalm chapter 14, 1 through 3, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one, there is none who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. He says there's not, so even in the Old Testament, they knew there is none who does good. There is no, they all have turned aside that this was a pervasive problem. So when Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners, they should know what he's talking about. They should realize, oh wait, none of us are righteous. He came for sinners and we're sinners too. We'll move on here to verses 14 through 17, the bridegroom says this, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. So the disciples of John. We learn here that John, John the Baptist is still doing ministry. Right? Even after he baptized Jesus, after Jesus starts his ministry, John the Baptist is still at it and he has his own disciples. Um, John himself was not yet sure that Jesus was the Messiah and so they are still carrying on baptizing people for repentance um, and, and preaching the word in the way that they can and preparing the way. And, and so they bring this question of why don't you fast? Um, they, they have this religious practice. The Pharisees have this religious practice. Um, everyone who seemed to take God seriously in that day fasted. It was almost like a mark of, of how serious you were. And so they have this question of like, you guys seem like you care, you're, you're out here doing all these miracles, you're preaching the word, you're doing all these good things, why don't you fast? How come you guys aren't as religious as us, is essentially what they're saying. And as far as they could see, Jesus was doing everything wrong. He's eating and drinking with sinners instead of fasting. Um, and so Jesus paints this picture of himself as the bridegroom and his disciples as 
wedding guest. And it's an, this is an analogy of calling himself the bridegroom. is something that's carried through Scripture all the way to Revelation. But even in Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5, it says this, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So even here we see um, the people of God being compared to a bride and, and God himself being compared to a bridegroom. Um, and, and so he says, hey, it would be improper for them to fast while he's with them. But he also indicates there is a time coming when the disciples will fast, when he's taken away from them. Practically speaking, Jesus and the disciples were so active that it would have been unhealthy for them to fast. They're moving around all the time. They're, they're going from place to place. They're doing intense ministry sessions where they're healing and teaching. And so they needed their energy. Um, it would have made them very difficult for them to fast. Um, but Jesus says, then they will fast. There is this time coming. And so that's now, right? Of course, Jesus has ascended to the Father. And so he says, like, then there will be fasting in, in uh, Christian community. Um, and so fasting is appropriate and beneficial for Christians today, um, not as a sign of piety, uh, but as a means of aiding prayer. Um, and so we think about when Christians fast. Um, Christians fast when uh, preparing to make a big decision, um, when facing a difficult problem, um, when interceding on behalf of someone else, right? There are these kind of reasons that we fast to aid in prayer, but not and Jesus is was specific on this earlier when we were reading in the Sermon on the Mount, not as a sign of how religious we are uh, for anybody else's sake. Um, we see something like this in Acts chapter 13. We see an example of the early church and how they used fasting. It says this, Now there, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we see here Jesus' or we see here that is the, the church at Antioch praying and fasting because they're trying to determine where should we where should we focus our ministry efforts? Where should we send uh, missionaries? And, and who should we send? And the Holy Spirit speaks to them in that fasting and praying and worshiping that they're doing to, to send Barnabas and, and, um, and Paul. And so then they even pray and fast after that, and, and they lay their hands on them, and they send them off. Um, we see it as it's part of this big decision that they're making. Um, so those are some examples of how Christians fast today. But Jesus explains overall that, that he's doing something new. Right? He uses these two examples um, to, to talk about the fact that he's implementing something that's brand new uh, to them. That uh, you don't, you, he says, you don't use unshrunk cloth to patch an old garment. Um, that it would, it would tear away when that cloth does shrink. It's going to create a worse tear. Um, and that you don't put new wine into old wineskins because it can cause them to burst. Uh, and Jesus is doing a brand new thing. He's implementing something that they haven't seen before. He's not just calling them back to the old ways like so many of the prophets did. He's fulfilling the law and the prophets. He's fulfilling the old ways, and he's starting a new 
age. And he wants them to get on board with that. He wants them to be a part of it, to understand what he's doing. We'll wrap up today with this. Three takeaways for today's message. Number one, allow Jesus to have authority over your life just as Matthew did. So Matthew, he had seen Jesus' authority demonstrated and heard about Jesus' authority being demonstrated over all these different areas. And eventually he decides, Jesus, Jesus can have authority over my life as well. Number two, consider your interactions with the tax collectors and sinners of our day. Who goes in that category? Who are the people that are rejected, who are cast out, who are not accepted by religious people in our day? Um, and, and consider how do you interact with them? Is it, are they people that would feel welcomed by you? Um, are, are they people that you uh, just kind of co-opt their sin? Or on the flip side, are you people that kind of co-opt their sin and tell them it's okay, they can continue doing all those things, and it's great, actually, that they, that they sin? Um, what are your interactions like with them? I think for most of us, frankly, in, in church community, we tend to be those who make people feel rejected, make people feel left out. How can we strike that balance that Jesus struck, where he was able to do both? He was able to eat and drink with them, to befriend them, to be in their lives and make them feel welcomed, and yet also maintain this idea of, but this is not okay. Um, Jesus struck that balance, and I think we need to look to him to see how can we strike that balance as well and call people to the saving knowledge of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And then third, ask Jesus to do something new with you. Jesus is always doing something new in the world. He wants to bring the gospel to new places. Um, he wants to utilize us for ministry in new ways. Um, consider how does Jesus want to do something new with you and ask him, um, hey God, I want, to, I want to live for you. I want to live for your kingdom. What can you, how can you use me? Show me how you might use me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that we can get into these things, that we can consider these things. Um, God, we just pray that you would be working in our lives, working in our hearts, um, that you would be doing something new with us all the time growing us in Christ-likeness, activating us for ministry. God, use us for your glory and good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
was betrayed. He took the bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, he took the cup and blessing it. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, the hope of the gospel to everyone you encounter this week. Amen and amen.